Well, good morning again. I'm really, really excited about today's sermon. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 8 is where we're going to start in just a moment. If you want to be uh, following along in a Bible or on your phone, you can do that. Uh, we'll, we'll be there in just a minute. I want to make one mention. Obviously, we haven't shared communion together. If you came in late, uh, I mentioned this, but just to be sure uh, here in a minute to grab a communion cup so you can share in that time together. I also had, we had so much to do in the beginning of the service. I didn't uh, mention that I, I want to do one other thing to, to recognize someone. Uh, Tommy and Susan Goodman are sitting right over here. Y'all want to recognize, show us where you're sitting over there. They're right there, okay? Uh, Susan is Car Gary and Connie McGregor's daughter, Tommy's son-in-law, and um, they want to be recognized as a part of this body, and so I want to ask if you would welcome them. They've been around for a while and, um, and, and have mentioned to me a couple of times, hey, we want to we wanna place membership, and so we're, we welcome you guys. Uh, they're a great couple, and I hope you'll take an opportunity to get to know them uh, this morning. Um, I want to start with a prayer as we prepare to look in this series that we're in. Exodus chapter 8 is where we're going to be in just a minute, but let's pray together before we read. <clears throat> Father, we... We thank you for your love. We thank you for Christ and him coming to be with us, to give his life for us, to lead us out of Egypt. And we pray this morning, God, as we open your word, that you'll open our hearts, that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you want us to see and hear. God, today we, rec we, we recognize and we welcome uh, Tommy and Susan. We're thankful for their desire to be a part of this body and we pray your blessing upon them in every way. We look forward to the ways that you'll use uh, their talents and gifts to serve here with this church family. We also want to recognize God as we uh, begin a new school year. We know some of our students have already started. Some of our teachers have already started this last week. And, and the rest of us are starting this week. And we pray, uh, we still want to acknowledge, even though we're going to do this in a bigger way with Back to School Sunday next week, we want to acknowledge God that we... Uh, we need your help and guidance. We want to ask for your protection over our students, our teachers, all the staff, all the people who make school happen every year. Um, we pray especially for this upcoming year and whatever joys and potential challenges that may be down the road, we pray that you will give us guidance and wisdom and strength. You'll pray, we pray for the leaders of our districts as they make decisions, uh, maybe hard decisions at times. Uh, we thank you for your love and faithfulness to us, and we pray this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in week three of this series that we are calling Finding Jesus in Exodus. And um, the idea behind this study is to sort of place ourselves in the Exodus story, which is, I believe, one of, if not maybe the most important Old Testament stories that there is. There's so much happening in the story of the Exodus. And we want to place ourselves there because, as we're finding out in this study, it's our story too. The story of the Exodus is as much about God saving us as it is God saving Israel. It's about a story about God's people learning to trust God and what God is doing in them and through them, instead of trusting in the nation that they are living in, in their case, Egypt, and the rulers of that nation. And it's a story where we find, I believe, Jesus lurking around every corner. And so 
Usually, as most of you know, I I pick a passage and we sort of stay in that passage. Today, due to the nature of the the way this story is told, uh, I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit. All the verses that we're going to read will be up here on the screen. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 8. This is what it reads. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. You can leave that out for just a second as we talk about what's going on here in Exodus chapter 8. Moses has been called by God from within the burning bush, the story we looked at last week, to deliver the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery. And right here at this point, we've fast-forwarded a little bit in the story here in Exodus chapter 8, Moses is doing it. Moses has gone before Pharaoh, and he is now proclaiming to Pharaoh that God declares that he must let his people go. But nothing has changed. Pharaoh is not willing to do the thing that God asks. When Moses first goes to Pharaoh, here is Exodus chapter 8, but a couple of chapters before this, the, one of the first times that Moses goes to Pharaoh, this is how Pharaoh responds in Exodus 5. He says, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And I will not let Israel go. Now, from our view, this statement by Pharaoh seems just dumb, honestly, right? We understand about God and we understand who God is, but think about it from Pharaoh's perspective for a moment. Pharaoh has an entire empire to protect. Israel has been Egypt's labor force for hundreds of years. Pharaoh has built a massive empire that he has to protect. He's built this empire on the backs of the cheap labor of the Israelites. So Pharaoh responds by saying, I hear you telling me that God says to let his people go, but I want to tell you who is God that I should obey him. I don't know him, and I'm not going to do what he says. And the answer, of course, to Pharaoh's question, who is God, is a a question, an answer that he is about to find out in more ways than he wants to know. God sends 10 different plagues to Egypt. 10, 10 plagues, back to back to back. Blood and frogs and gnats and flies and livestock and boils and hail and locusts and darkness and the plague of the death of the firstborn. What we know historically about Egypt and about Egyptians is that they were a society that that followed a group, a pantheon of gods and goddesses. And so what's interesting about each of these plagues is that each one of these plagues not only destroys Egypt and sends a very clear message to Pharaoh about who this God is that he had asked about, they are also, each of these plagues, a full assault and a humiliation of the Egyptian gods and goddesses in whom Pharaoh and the Egyptians put their trust. It's as if God's saying, your gods aren't me. And these plagues aren't just a little bit, right? They're not just, God just doesn't kind of kind of do this. He goes all out. Entire rivers turn to blood. Locusts completely destroy their crops. Frogs. I want to just pause on frogs for a minute. Because we've had this frog living outside our, in our flower bed all summer long, and he always makes his way out at night. And it seems like any time we're coming into the house at night, you have to step over and around this frog. 
And one frog over and over and over, it's, it's, it's you know, not, I mean, it's usually, you, people have pet frogs, I guess, but it's not usually at the top of the list of, you know, things that people want for a pet. We're not talking about one frog. We're talking about frogs everywhere. I just want to read a little, little, little glimpse of what this plague would have been like, and it's like this for all of them. This is what Exodus chapter 8 verse 3 says that, that about this story. Moses said this to Pharaoh, the Nile River will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and in your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and your kneading troughs. How disgusting is this to think about, right? Frogs are literally everywhere. When God took them away, though, that's, the, that's not even the worst part because when God took the frogs away to move on to the next plague, they don't just hop away. You can read for yourself, but basically if you keep reading in Exodus chapter 8, when they die, they just die right where they are. They died in houses, in people's ovens, in the courtyard, in the field, wherever they were. So that there are these piles of frogs, heaps of frogs. And scripture says that the land reeks of dead frogs after this plague is over. And again, the message of these frogs, of, the, of these plagues, the frogs too, but the message of the plagues is this. The gods of Egypt are not able to save you. The gods of Egypt are not able to save you. The idols of Egypt cannot rescue you. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. So the plagues begin to come. And there are ten of these things. And they are all just as terrible as the frogs that I read about. Just as destructive. All intended to send this very clear message that God is mighty to save but Egypt and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods are not. And it all came about, this, these moments came about because God heard his people and came to their rescue. If you rewind a little more in the story, I want you to listen to what Exodus chapter 2 tells us happened. It says the Israelites groaned in, slavery, in their slavery and they cried out. And their cry for help and in their cry for help, they went up to God because of their slave. I can't, I, don't know, I guess I messed that up. The Israelites, gro- go ahead and go back. I'm going to re- reread that. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. There you go. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. I want you to think about this. Pharaoh had, had made the Israelites' lives bitter. They're, they were being exploited. They were being used. They were being taken advantage of. Their lives were hard. And they cry out. And I want you to notice about this verse in Exodus chapter 2. If you're familiar with this story, you probably hear that and you think, well, they cried out to God. But notice in the story, they don't cry out to God. We're not actually told who they cry out to. I think that you could make a pretty good argument that they're probably just crying out to Pharaoh. And I'm going to give you some reasons why I think that. First of all, is because in their view, in their way of viewing things, Pharaoh is in charge. They are slaves. And Pharaoh is in charge, and they are miserable. Usually, when you are subject to someone else, and you're miserable, 
The person you cry out to is the person who you think can change that situation. Right? After all, he's the king of Egypt. They are the lowest class, and this is the way that people think. I'm miserable. I'm suffering. My government will save me. The ruler of my government will save me. Israel had put their trust in Pharaoh, I think. Remember, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years have passed. There are people who have been raised in Egypt, Israelites who have been raised in Egypt and have died in Egypt, and that's all they've ever known. And they think that the gods of Egypt can save them. But it all gets exposed, right? The other reason that I, that I think that they might be crying out to Pharaoh and not to God is they don't really know God. They don't know Yahweh at this point in the story. They are going to get to know Yahweh, but they've been in Egypt a long time. As I said, hundreds of years. Generations have come and have gone. They know that they have a history maybe. Maybe they've heard a story at some point in the past about God, but they don't really know God at this point. God, you, if you read the story as God, throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly telling them who he is, reminding them of who he is, sharing more about who he is to them as they get to know him and their relationship changes and evolves over time. Their knowledge, though, at this point of God has, also, in all honesty, in a lot of ways been lost. And it has to be recovered. So I think that they're crying out, take pity on us, right? It's like, give us a break. Don't make us make more bricks, Pharaoh. Give us justice. But Pharaoh doesn't hear, or Pharaoh doesn't want to hear, maybe. The lowest class is often easily overlooked. And if they don't, if they're not there, his life changes forever, and he knows that. So he doesn't hear, or he doesn't want to hear, but God does hear. So we're told they cry out. We're not told specifically to who they cry out to, but the interesting thing is Pharaoh doesn't hear, but God does. God sees them. God hears them. God comes to their rescue to save them. And this is what Exodus chapter 3 says. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I believe what we're reading in this story this morning is maybe the clearest picture of salvation in the Old Testament. And I believe the picture that we're looking at fully informs the, the picture, what we come to understand as salvation in the New Testament. Does that make sense? And I want, maybe, maybe I'll say it a different way. Let me say it this way. Let, what God is doing here for Israel that we're reading about, God will do for everyone in Christ. It's the same exact thing. God sees us. God hears us. God is concerned about us. And God comes to our rescue. God sees us. God hears us. God cares about us. God knows what we're going through. And God comes to our rescue. They are crying out to Pharaoh, but he doesn't hear or he pretends not to hear or doesn't want to hear. But God does. God has seen them and hears them and knows them. What's interesting about Israel's journey out of Egypt is that it's actually the same exact journey that Jesus would take thousands of years later. Many years after the Exodus, 
Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And when he's born, an evil, paranoid, tyrant ruler called Herod decides to go on a child hunt of his own, much like Pharaoh had done many years before. And I want you to listen to the way Matthew tells this story, very intentionally written for his Jewish audience. He says this, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child, Jesus, and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Every original hearer seeing this in Matthew's gospel would have known exactly what it meant. Out of Egypt. They would understand that Jesus was leading the new exodus that would lead an enslaved people into the long-awaited promised land. Everyone who had experienced the hardship of slavery would find hope. And I think one of the reasons we have to learn to see Jesus, church, in these Old Testament stories is that if we do not look for him, we can separate these stories out and make them about something altogether different than what they're intended to be about. We can start reading the Old Testament, I think. If we don't see Jesus in the story, we, start, we can start reading the Old Testament like it's plan A that didn't quite work out for God. That's probably a way that some of us have thought about the Old Testament or have struggled to understand what the Old Testament's purpose is exactly. It's all the same project. It's not that, you know, the Old Testament didn't quite work out. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't mess up. God wasn't surprised what, about what happened. It's not like God has to come up with a plan B and send Jesus because his plan A didn't work. It's all plan A. Salvation, maybe a way to think about it, is that salvation begins in the Old Testament and it finds its completion in the New Testament. But it's all the same project. It's all plan A. And Jesus took the same journey that Israel would take. American theologian Robert Jensen says it this way, and I love this quote. He said, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. When God raises Jesus from the dead in the New Testament, it's, it's as if God is saying, this is who I am, and this is who I have always been. I have always been a God who sees my people and hears my people and cares for my people and comes to their rescue. God doing in Christ in fullness what he first did for Israel. This is what God has been like all along. A God who sees us, a God who hears us, a God who cares about us, and a God who comes to our rescue. A God who sees us and hears us and cares about us and comes to our rescue. This is good news, amen? This is good news, amen? That this is who God has always been. And there's such hope in knowing this, knowing that what we go through, God understands that God has walked faithfully with his people all along. And that our job is to resist putting our trust and our hope in the wrong God and to fix our eyes 
on Jesus Christ. And really, when you think about the Exodus story, the way that I'm talking about it this morning, it's not only a salvation story, it's a resurrection story. Israel was dead and lived hundreds of years in Egypt, buried under the oppression of the tyrant ruler Pharaoh. And God brought them back to life, gave them a new name, and reminded them of their place as sons and daughters of the Most High God because God sees his people, God hears his people, God cares about his people, and God comes to the rescue of his people. So back to the Exodus story. It's interesting that in one place in the Exodus story, the language of son and daughter actually shows up, which I think is intentional. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 4. Then say this to Pharaoh. This is another time where God is telling Moses to, what to say to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Notice the language. Israel is my firstborn son. So you're going to have to let him go. God says, because my son is going to serve me. My son is not yours. My son is mine. This is the people, God's saying, through whom I will bring salvation into the world. They are my firstborn son. So you got to let them go so they can worship me and serve me and know me and come into relationship with me. Through Moses, Pharaoh is warned, let my son go. And if you don't, there will be a consequence greater. There will be a consequence that the Egyptian gods and goddesses will not be able to stop. But Pharaoh does not listen. It didn't work. So this, there have been nine plagues, but the tenth and final plague comes, the firstborn. The firstborn sons of Egypt all die. But the firstborn sons of Israel all live. And how did it happen? Well, it happened by the blood of the Lamb. You can read more about this story in Exodus chapter 12. Moses tells the Israelites, this is what's going to happen. God is going to send an angel of death, and the firstborn of every Egyptian is going to die. The firstborn of their livestock is going to die. But all the Israelites, each family is supposed to get a spotless male lamb. And you're going to keep your lamb for two weeks. And then as the sun sets on the 14th day, you're going to kill the lamb and you're going to take the blood from the lamb and you're going to put it on the doorpost of your house. And then you're going to roast the lamb, right? But the, the lamb isn't being punished, by the way. The lamb is, being, is, providing, the lamb is providing salvation and the meal for the covenant. The lamb is a gift, really. And so you're going you're gonna to roast the lamb. You're going to have this big feast, and this feast became known as the Passover. Why? Why is it called the Passover? Because death, when it comes to visit Egypt and to take the life of the firstborn son of Egyptian families, is going to pass over all the Israelite families because they, their doorposts have been covered in the blood of the lamb, right? And so that, that's all... A lot in and of itself, impressive in and of itself. But here, I think, is the best part of what God tells the Israelites to do. God says, when you eat this Passover meal, I want you to have your traveling clothes on. God says, I want you to eat it with your staff in your hand, which is a way of saying, 
be ready to go. Right? This is a fast food meal. Be ready for a hike. Because this will be your last meal in Egypt. After you eat this meal, you'll be getting out of town. And I want you to eat this meal with such anticipation, God says, that I don't even want you to wait for the bread to rise. I want you to use unleavened bread because you're not going to have time for the bread to rise. Bread without yeast. We're in that big a hurry to get out of here after this meal is over. And I think at first the Passover, if you're familiar with this story and have heard it before, it strikes us maybe as inhumane, maybe even a bit savage. But I believe it is the key to understanding how to think about salvation and our exit from slavery. All of us, in one way or another, are moving out of Egypt and into freedom. All of us, in one way or another, are moving out of Egypt and into freedom. Israel was powerless to do anything on their own to get themselves out of this great obstacle, Egypt. They could not save themselves. It would take blood, but it would not be their blood. It would be the blood of a lamb. And that's why God told Israel to remember the exodus at Passover every year, because he didn't want them to forget. Right? The Passover meal was a way of remembering the pain of slavery, hundreds of years of slavery, and the graciousness of God's salvation. And this, church, is your story. And this is my story, that God sees us and hears us and cares for us and has come to our rescue. And so this morning, we're going to share this communion meal together, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. It looks a little different in 2021 than it did back in the day. But this is a meal that Jesus started if you read in the New Testament, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, what we call the Lord's Supper, he's eating it, sharing it within the context of the larger Passover meal that he's eating with his disciples. I, I want you to think about what we're going to do from today on as the new Passover meal. That's really what it is. It's not only remembering what Jesus has done for us. It is also connecting our story to our family's story which is the Exodus story, that God sees us and hears us and cares for us and has come to our rescue. This is a meal that we share to remember that story, that we were once slaves in Egypt ourselves, and we were saved by a God that came to rescue us from our bondage. This is a meal that reminds us that this is what God has always been like, doing for the world what he first did for Israel. You have your traveling clothes on because we are not going to be in Egypt much longer. Our biggest problems are not too big for God. That's what this story reminds us about. Where is Jesus in the Exodus story? Jesus is everywhere in the Exodus story. Jesus is the God who sees us, who hears us, who knows us, who cares for us, and who has come to us to rescue and redeem us. Jesus is the lamb that came as a gift to offer his blood that would cover 
over our lives and allow death to pass over us. That's what we believe, that as followers of Jesus Christ, death is not our end because death has passed over us too because the blood of Christ has covered us. Jesus is the one who leads us out of our Egypts, which we talked about last week, away from bondage and slavery to sin. This is our story. And, and I realize I've, I've rushed to the end quickly where Jesus sort of becomes the victor, right? And, and I realize as I think about that that some of you may still be thinking about the fact that you're in Egypt. We're rushing to the meal, which is going to be the application of this sermon. But some of you still feel like that you're in bondage. Your life has been made bitter. You can't see your way out of Egypt because you're still feeling oppressed by whatever Pharaoh it is that's in your life. And I want to ask you to do something this morning as you think about your life. It's a hard thing, just preparing you, but you can do hard things. And I'm going to go first. If you still feel like that you're in Egypt, you, you know the Passover meal has been, you know, has, the new Passover meal has been prepared, that Christ is victorious, that Christ is the blood that covers your life. You know all that stuff I just said. But you think, man, yeah, I know that, and yet I still feel like I'm, I'm in Egypt a little bit, right? I'm in, I'm in a place right now where I'm stuck, I'm in bondage, I'm struggling. I want to ask you to raise your hand. And that's where I am. And I want you to see as your brothers and sisters in Christ that we're not alone in this, right? You can put your hands down. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else if you raised your hand. But I want you to think about what we just did as an act of confession. Saying, God, I know that you are a deliverer. I know that you have rescued us. But man, it feels really oppressive right now. Life feels really hard right now. And if you're feeling overwhelmed this morning by whatever Egypt is in your life, I realize that required vulnerability, and I appreciate and honor that. It took courage for you to do that. But I believe your faith will be strengthened because we are saying, we're, think about the story. How does all of it start? It starts by Israel crying out to God and God hearing them, Right? And all too often we come into a space like this and we sing the songs and we take the emblems of, of bread and wine and we say the prayers, but we don't ever acknowledge what it is that our hearts actually need to acknowledge. I want you to hear me, church, this morning very clearly that the Exodus story, the Exodus story tells us that when God heard the cries of the people, when they called out, to him in their groaning. The whole salvation process started because God heard his people, because God hears us and he sees us and he cares and he knows what you are going through and God has come to rescue us. This is not make-believe. This is not just a good story from the Bible. This is real life. Jesus has come to our rescue. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus has always been and is why we come to this point in the service. When, we, when you've heard us say things before, like the most important thing we do is share communion together, that is true. 
It's more important than the sermon, though the sermon gets way more time. And why that started a long time ago, I don't know. But it, it is important to teach. But really what we're going to do is as, as important as anything else we do when we're together. Because it helps us remember our story. To remember the way that God has always loved humanity. It started with Israel and it eventually spread to the entire world. What was once a chosen people in the New Testament says now the people of earth are God's chosen people. He wants everybody to come into a relationship with him. He wants everyone to know just how much he loves them and has seen them and cares about them and has come to rescue them from sin. And so this morning we're going to we're going to sing one more song. Chris and the worship team, you can stay seated where you are. It's really intended to just kind of be a reflection song. You're welcome to sing along. But the song is Blessed Jesus, and I think that the words tie in really well to what we've been talking about this morning. And so we're going to sing this one song, and then I'm going to uh, get back up and say a prayer over the bread and the cup, and then we'll share in communion together. Let's sing this song. <clears throat>